0: ACNFers, this episode is affiliate-sponsored by Liquid IV, and I gotta say, it's a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities, or if you just want to zhuzh up your water. As some of you know, I've been training for the Unsanctioned McKenzie Marathon, which must be postponed. My fitness is not coming around. Uh, I'll I'll say just a little more about that in a second, yeah. Anyway, uh, Liquid IV is in my bottle. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of the lemon-lime, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy, so you know your burly vegan digs it. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. And it's an affiliate partnership, so Brendan only gets paid if you buy stuff, so... Think about buying some stuff. I like the sound of that.
1: I just stop writing, and I I go out for a coffee, and then uh, I text ten friends telling them uh, uh, I want to die.
0: Oh, hey, CNF! at CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Yes. It's that Atavistian time of the month, so you know, spoiler alerts, uh, today's guest is none other than
1: Uh, Carlos Barragan.
0: Now I clipped out him pronouncing his name, and so when people have names that it might be a little bit challenging for me to pronounce, I just have them say their full names and usually I can do it. This time I wasn't so confident. Spelling is to writing as pronunciation is to audio. Anyway. His piece deals with romance scammers based out of Lagos, Nigeria, a cottage industry that exploits vulnerable, lonely people. We've likely all been tapped by a scammer of this nature. Like I'll occasionally get a DM from someone on Twitter or Instagram, and it'll be this uh, either a pirated image or a beautifully rendered AI generated image of like a coquettish Japanese woman saying how much they love my work. And right there, I know we're, we're in for a scam. I'm like, that's a lie, and you know it. And that's what I think, and I just block them. Uh, but for someone who is lonely, who wants connection, who might not be armed with the right degree of internet literacy, the sharks can smell that blood. And Carlos's mother was a victim of this, and it sent Carlos on a hunt to find these, what they're called, Yahoo boys uh yahoo being uh just uh, yahoo.com yeah so the, that's the nickname yeah hey, uh, understood good, good 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 okay uh make sure you're heading over to brandthemerito.com hey, hey for show notes and to sign up for the rage against the algorithm newsletter just click the lightning bolt on my website and i'll take you to rage against the com. there you get some bonus stuff there 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 could be some bonus stuff coming down the pipe maybe probably not i don't know maybe First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. As I said in the Liquid IV reading, uh, the McKenzie Marathon that I had originally scheduled for August 5th, which is roughly a month from now, uh, I, I have to just postpone it. Uh, my fitness, like, I'm not missing workouts, but my fitness just isn't coming along at the pace I'd like. And it, it could be a disaster. So I'm probably going to have to punt on that for like two months. So if you planned on it, and there was one person who did plan on joining me, uh, if there are more, I'm, I, uh, a rain check is in order, and a new date will be come down the line. Um, but for that one person, uh, I'll reach out to you, and uh, well, I'll let you know. Or you can do it; it's up to you. Whatevs. Uh, if you dig the show, consider sharing it with your networks uh, so we can grow the pie and get this CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts, so the wayward CNFer might say shit. I'll give that a shot. And speaking of reviews, we got a new one. And this one is, oh, man, so germane to today's conversation. And if you leave a review on the show, I always read them when they come in. It, it's uh, a bit of a drought of late. So this was wonderful to get this one from, uh, the other day from Agave Maria underscore. Here it is. My favorite writing podcast. Aw. Uh I've learned so much from this podcast. Uh, Brendan O'Meara is an excellent host who's able to dig into deep conversations about writing craft and practices with his guests. He doesn't shy away from talking about the messy parts of the writing, too. The insecurities, the difficulty of making time, and all the other challenges that writers often face. Listening helps me feel like I'm not alone in that struggle and gives me valuable ideas for moving through challenges. And here we go. This, this is the real part that makes it germane to today. I especially love the Atavist features. Hey, and look forward to my monthly ritual of listening to Omera's conversations with Atavist editors and writers. I hope anyone reading this finds as much joy, solidarity, and learning as I've found through listening to the CNF podcast. That's a home run review right there. Thank you, Agave Maria underscore. Amazing stuff. So cool. And I just love that. It, we get, I get to read that review on the day that I'm, Putting out another atavist interview. There's also uh, Patreon.com/CNFpod if you want to drop a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. I've, I'm wrapping up some of the one-on-ones that I'm doing with some patrons so far of any tier. It's not necessarily going to be a regular thing, but I threw it out there, and a chunk of the patron Patreon audience uh, took advantage of it. Sometimes all you need to do is talk things out, and that's what we've been doing. Going to close off that spigot very soon. So get in on it while you can. Lastly, we're going to do a shout-out to Athletic Brewing. Best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. And, you know, that could be some of the reason why my fitness isn't coming along. Yeah, not a paid plug, but I'm a brand ambassador. Not because I'm drinking too much Athletic. Because I'm drinking other things that do have alcohol in it. I, I'm a brand ambassador for Athletic, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. Go to athleticbrewing.com. Use my uh, my referral link and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, and you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they're not officially a sponsor of the podcast. I just get points for swag and beer. Give it a shot. Give it a can. Okay, here we go. First, we're going to hear from lead editor editor-in-chief and author of sisters in hate say we darby okay that's how we do it around here you ready to rock i said are you ready to rock My <sighs> most recent uh podcast review towards the end of the review a, ni- a nice little review the person says, "I especially love the Adavis features and look forward to my monthly ritual of listening to Omera's conversation with Adavis editors and writers. She's the first person, I believe it's a woman, who uh, mentioned the the Adavis things in in a review. So it's like, oh, I want to, I wanted to share that with you as we got going.
2: Oh, that's so nice. Uh, thank you to that reviewer, and I'm glad you enjoy listening to me and Brendan and Jonah and the writers chat with each other."
0: Yeah, and I've been talking with uh, some of my Patreon folks. I've just been doing some like uh, you know one-on-one like thirty-minute calls, just whatever they want to talk about, advice or stuff, stuff of that nature. And uh, and a couple have brought up the the atavist ones uh, also, and it, because they they tend to be more journalistically grounded, which and we get like the editor writer side of the table. So I think people have are really really like the whether they're reporters or journalists or not, I think they're really gleaning some some really cool insights from from your side of the table, the more journalism heavy nature of the conversation and stuff, the pitches and all that. So people I think are, are really they're, they're really resonating uh, w- with them. So I'm, I'm, I'm just so glad we continue to, to do this.
2: Yeah, no, me me too. Um, and, you know, I think it's important journalism, particularly this kind of journalism, is such a collaborative process. And so you know really understanding what goes in <laughs> on all sides um, is is illuminating. So um, yeah, so I'm glad people are enjoying it. Thanks people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Carlos's piece here, uh, this takes him I mean he I, I believe he grew up in Spain and this, pa- pl- this piece took him to, to Nigeria. And so, a bit of a globetrotter in in that sense. Uh, so, with the, with this particular piece, uh, what uh, you know, when you when it came across your desk, I always like getting getting a sense of you know what electricity you felt coming off this pitch and what made you really want to lean into it.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think that we we get a good number of sort of personal essay pitches, and almost all of them don't really work for us because they don't necessarily have narrative elements in of of the kind that we're looking for. And you know, my my sort of gold standard, and I think we this piece was before we started doing um CNF episodes together. um, But the gold standard for me is this piece called Lost in Summerland by Barrett Swanson, where he goes with his brother, who believes he can communicate with the dead, to the largest gathering of psychics and mediums in, in the world. And You know it's it's a travel story i think it was actually in best american travel writing but you know it's it's a in in addition to being a travel story which gives it you know a bit of a a narrative you know thrust to begin with as as travel stories do um there are also these personal revelations that happen along the way and uh and by the by the time you get to the end you kind of realize that all along a different question like the, the writer was seeking an answer to a different question than he realized um, he was asking it all. And, um, and I felt like Carlos's piece had very similar elements. Um, you know, topics incredibly different, their vantage in life is very different. Carlos is, is you know, uh, just finishing, I think he's just finishing his um, master's in uh, journalism at Columbia. And so what I was really taken with was this combination of really getting into a subculture that I, you know, have obviously heard about. We've all read the headlines about romance scamming and people, you know, losing savings and, um, you know, going into debt to to, to give money to, uh, you know, people they've never met but believe they're in love with. But he really got behind the curtain um, and gained, you know, the trust uh, of some of these scammers and so you really got a sense of what this culture is like and he was very i think respectful um and compassionate um also injects it with some humor and then on top of that there was this personal element which was that his mother had been scammed he really wanted to understand how that had happened and so you know he goes to nigeria looking for his mom scammer um and then kind of realizes by the end that all along he wasn't totally looking for the scammer. He was actually looking for something else to an answer to a different question than, you know, who is this person that scammed my mom? I mean, to be totally frank, I was like, gosh, people, I want to read about romance scammers. People want to read about romance scammers. Like mm-hmm. it's just a sort of interesting lens into, into a phenomenon um, that's going on right now. Um, and then on top of that, I thought that it had, you know, this nice mix of reporting and personal elements. So yeah, so that was kind of the the feeling when I got it.
0: Well, there's always, I I think every single one of us has been spammed by someone, uh, be it email or DMs or people trying to follow us on various social media platforms that have this element of they're they're fishing, they're trying to engender some, they're trying to get their tentacles into your life somehow. And so when I started reading this, I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing that he's going to, like you were saying, get behind the curtain of the people who are actually trying to, 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 to scam you and it, it was just like oh, I, I felt I'm like all right at least at this period of my life I have internet literacy to the point where mm. I can recognize this but it also terrifies me because what's gonna happen in like 30 years like what's gonna be the uh, the scammer de jour at that time be like all right this sounds legit I hear, here's my bank account
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I think I think it's a totally fair question um, and uh you know one section of the piece I actually really like is how he quickly but I think pretty thoroughly you know sort of shows the ways that scamming of this variety has evolved um and you know taken on new forms taken on new targets and then also I think there's the section that begins um you know uh, it's like cons beget cons and scamming evolves or something like that because there are also con artists who are conning the con artists like it's just this, you know, kind of fascinating ripple effect uh, that I think he he's able to illustrate really nicely. And I do think, you know, he does a really good job of countering the notion of, you know, oh, this would never happen to me. I would never be so quote unquote stupid. I would never be so vulnerable by way of his mom, especially, I think, um, you know, someone that he loves deeply and who was very candid um, in, in the story um, and with our fact checker, I should say, as I understand that she's invited our fact checker to have coffee with her when she's in madrid (laughs) next time so um but i but i think that that's a really nice way of humanizing both sides of the equation right the the side because he gets to know some of the scammers that um he spends a lot of time with in nigeria um and he really humanizes their side of the story but then he he humanizes the side of targets victims you know whatever you want to call them and i think that that's you know the real special quality of the story is the humanization um that he's able to bring to it
0: yeah, in this piece, and I'm glad you brought up the the personal essay uh, slant of it. How how would this piece? I think this piece could have very well worked uh, had it not been a you know, uh, personally driven as well. If it was just like scott eden doing his investigative stuff on like the gold mines in peru i think if granted he injects himself in that towards the end but it's like i feel like this piece could have just been like that as well you know how how might this piece have been different if there that was kind of the angle too because to me i still think it could have worked also
2: yeah i i think that's a fair point you know i think that the the version and please correct me if i'm wrong that you're kind of describing is more you know inside the world of Nigeria's romance gamers, right? Like peeling yeah. back the, the curtain. You don't peel a curtain. Um, <laughs> pulling back the curtain um, to, to really understand who these people are. To me, that's a more traditional feature than it is a narrative because, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're probably going to be bouncing around a bit. You're going to get into the statistics of things, you know, the $1.3 billion that romance gaming cost Americans in 2021, which is just an astonishing number. Um, the untold number of scammers there are in Nigeria. I mean, it could, some people think it might be in the millions. Like it's, you know, really um, sort of painting a picture, right? Of this phenomenon. And and I think for Atavis purposes, the personal element is really what gives it that narrative thread and that backbone. Like we we keep coming back to the question of, you know, who is Carlos looking for, um what is he hoping to find and you know where is he going to end like what 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 resolution in whatever direction is he going to come to and so to me that personal element was the thing that really helped us shape it into an avist narrative as as opposed to you know a more traditional magazine feature, which isn't to say that you know without the personal element we couldn't have found a way to to make it work for the adivist, but I think some other things would have needed to happen from a narrative standpoint that uh, that I'm not sure did happen um, in in the course of the reporting. Um, and so you know for me, as soon as I read the pitch, and then he actually had a, a draft more or less written because he'd been working on it for his his program at Columbia, um, you know, really the personal element stood out to me. And I saw how that could be uh, sort of our anchor as we went through it. And, you know, returning to this question of what happened to his mom, why did it happen? um, And, you know, how his thinking about it changes in the course of of this journey.
0: Yeah, I love how the the first person well deployed becomes a very good storytelling device. And that works very well here.
2: I think so too, and you know, I—I I mean, I generally am a fan of first person, um, not in—not for the sake of it, you know, not for the sake of using I and me, but oftentimes I do feel like the sort of prohibition that existed on it for the longest time did a disservice to to some stories because you know, p- putting oneself in it is often you know a helpful way of seeing things more clearly, um, more genuinely. And, uh, and I think that, yeah, Carlos's like unique first person perspective was, I don't know, it, he, he kind of becomes the reader's eyes in the story, but at the same time, you know, he, he interrogates himself, like he turns his own lens on himself, which I think, um, by the end is, is, you know, where where the story sort of lands is that he realizes he needs to <laughs> turn around and take a look in the mirror and sort of question some of his own questions, if you will. So yeah, I'm glad the first person worked for you.
0: And I always love getting a sense of, the editorial challenges that you face as you're trying to shape the piece into its best possible version. And so what were any challenges that you encountered here just on your side of the table to to manifest the best version of Carlos's story?
2: The version he initially sent was long, I think longer than it felt like the story needed to be. Um, and so there was just a lot of, you know, trimming and shaping and figuring out what felt essential and what didn't. And then, and I feel like Carlos will be the first to tell you this, you know, English is not his first language. And so this is the first time he's written something of, you know, such length and depth in English. And so, you know, I have no problem with that, obviously. But I think, you know, that's always an interesting challenge as an editor, particularly when it comes to articulating some of that first person stuff, because, uh, you know, you can tell me something that you saw and, you know, I can, I too can look at it potentially, you know, I can Google it and be like, Oh, okay, this is what it looks like. I can help you describe it. Um, but getting, you know, somebody to sort of articulate a metaphor or something about, you know, they're thinking of themselves or whatever that can take a bit more back and forth just because things can get lost in translation. So there were a couple of points in the piece where, you know, we went back and forth a little bit more and it was more, of that first person stuff. Um, and Carlos was great in saying, you know, I would say, I think maybe this is what you're trying to say. And he would say, no, that's actually not what I'm trying to say, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and, and sort of working to get to, to a point where, you know, it, it worked for him, it worked for me, but you know, I think, I don't know one of the pleasures of being an editor is being challenged in that way sometimes so very
0: nice well i want to turn this over to, to carlos and we'll have a conversation with him about this piece and his mom and how everything uh tied together but as always say it's always great to get your insights from your side of the table so thanks for the time as always
2: thanks so much brendan
0: pretty rad pretty rad awesome yeah, I love that. Love getting the insights on that side of the table. But we're all on the same side of the table. You, you, you get it. Uh, thank you, Sayward. Uh, now we're we're going to talk to Carlos. And this piece it is, uh, Atavis rarely does things that are like personal essay in nature, but that's where you get the narrative revelation of this piece. It's a necessary element, a necessary device. And it's going to be really cool to hear how Carlos processed that and the for lack of a better term the manhunt that that he was on to seek a under better understanding uh of his mother via this journey it's a really well done and it's such a cool piece and i'm glad that you're going to get to hear carlos talk about this piece for the atavist right now got on your radar because of uh these romance scammers um one got in touch with your mom so why don't you just like kind of take us to that moment of how this how how you arrived at this story and specifically you know how your mother was uh initially affected by it
1: well in 2015 i was 19 years old uh i didn't even know that i was a journalist i was studying at the university and my mother, who um, was a single mother for her, like almost her entire life, um, was looking for a partner and she was very frustrated. And I remember when I talked to her and I encouraged her to, to try Tinder because she wasn't having any success. And at some point, she was very excited about a guy that she had met at uh, on Tinder and at some point, of course, uh, her sons, my, my brothers and me, we weren't very excited. We just, I don't know how to put it, but we were like, okay, ma'am, uh, good for you. Mm-hmm. So we didn't pay a lot of, like, we didn't pay any attention at all, which is important to understand how it, like, why it ended, how it ended. But uh, at some point, my mother kept telling us about this guy, and of course, many red flags. Um, we we saw many red flags, and at some point, we 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 were disco- we were like we discovered that this guy was an, an American soldier based in Afghanistan. Of course, when we know when we uh, knew that this guy was supposedly in Afghanistan, it raised a lot of questions. So, long story short, uh, my mother at some point, told us that the guy was going to send uh, gold bars, uh, for, like solid gold bars, to our house. And at that point, I was like, this is a scam. But how am I going to prove to my mother that this is a scam? So um, after after that, um, I kept thinking, and I found a way to prove it to her and for a while. Like, it, like in, in a couple of days... My mother understood that she was being targeted; that that he was a scam, and it was pretty bleak. But at least, but only for one or two days, because I don't know. Like my mother was very resilient, and she understood pretty quickly when I saw to her that the emails weren't coming from Syria or Afghanistan, but they were coming from uh, Lagos and Nigeria. So um, I'm gonna fast forward to the, the the minute I decided to write this story, because yeah. We as a family, we try to forget about that uh, because uh, for my mother, it was very embarrassing. But uh, like, can like imagine she had told all her friends and her family members about this guy? And suddenly people asking about this guy, like, how how is Brian? Well, Brian, uh, how funny it is that Brian is not Brian. Um, so after three or four years, I became a journalist and I started working in a newspaper in Spain and I was a bit obsessed with that story, but uh, I didn't know how to tell it. And I remember that at some point I read in, um, I think it was the Washington Post, uh, an article about Roman scams. And for me, Roman scams was a personal story, but I never had thought about, that as a like a, a global problem. And when I read that story, I, I understood that there was a whole story behind behind the, my mother's scam. So uh, at that moment, I started thinking about a way to tell the story. And when the pandemic started, my mother uh, was lo- was very, very lonely. And I remember thinking mm. about this story and that's when I decided that uh, I wanted to know what was going on in Nigeria.
0: So how log- you know logistically speaking how do you s- start to arrange uh, and and get access to to a fixer to someone in Lagos that can uh, let you behind the curtain in this subculture of romance scammers
1: That's a very good question because at the beginning I was very optimistic like I thought that I was going to find my mother's scammer I didn't know what was the the scope of the, the scope of the problem so I started reading other articles, and I found that there, like, there were a lot of them. Uh, there's a very good documentary from the New York Times uh, about uh, something similar that happened in Miami. <clears throat> and the reporter, Jack Nickas, went to Lagos for five days. And I, I, I contacted him, and I told him my story, and he was very kind. And he gave me uh, the contact of his fixer, but funny enough, the, the fixer that he, the contact that he gave me was from a fixer that they had not hired at the beginning. They were here in Nigeria, and the fixer that they hired didn't work out, and then they, they met this guy that is now my fixer, uh, my friend, Buki Omoseni. And thanks to this guy, I, I, I could travel to Nigeria, and he introduced me to all the Yahoo boys. The funny thing—well, now it's funny—but at that moment it wasn't funny. Was that when I traveled here to Nigeria? First of all, I was—I—I I, I met Buki, and Buki um, introduced me to other Yahoo boys, in particular to Biggie, who is a Yahoo boy that I quoted in the story. But after 24 hours, Buki got very, was very ill, and he was sleeping at the hotel the whole day so i was suddenly i was in lagos with this yahoo boy who was barely like yeah it was he was like 29 and i was a bit like wow what's going on what should i do but uh in terms of the story it was better because i'm not gonna say that we became friends but in a way biggie and i we got very close to each other and bookie was sent to the hospital and suddenly my new fixer was a yahoo boy who helped me uh met all the yahoo boys and specifically he thanks to that i i i happened to see more about his life i he was more human in a way because he was not only a yahoo boy but he was a person he was living with me he was taking me everywhere he was showing me his conversations and I think that it was a bit like accidentally, but I met a Yahoo Boy and all others through him as well um, by chance.
0: Yeah. What was your assumption of what the Yahoo Boys would be uh, before you met them? And then once you met them, and especially with Biggie, who was your fixer, essentially, like how did your assumptions and your impressions of them change over time?
1: At the beginning, I had a, I had I had a few problems picturing them because if you go to the internet, there are many articles about Roman scams. There are many victims on the internet uh, telling their stories. Well, not 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 that many because it promotes a lot of the same. But what it's really difficult to find is like stories about Yahoo boys. And of course, you can find a story that the, like picture them as. Carlos people that are like also sallow mm-hmm. and they are very like evil and of course some of them they are but it's more complex than that and at the beginning i was like probably influenced by that that idea but when i met them i was surprised because especially i, I had this idea of the Nigerian prince which is like a, a bit of a cliché i had this idea of like whenever you go to twitter or instagram you get messages from uh, scammers who are like it's obviously a scam. A scam. And what I the the, the 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 what 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 changed in my mind was that I realized these guys, some of them, they were very smart. They something for example, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna give you an example. I was struck. I was like really surprised by the fact that some of them could spend one or two months talking to a victim without asking for money, and that's wild. And, you know, like how much, like how the, 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 the time and the resources they have to put uh, into the victims. So these guys are guys who are like thinking about this 24-7 because, well, and also the, 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 uh, for sure the, the, like, the problem about poverty, that if you ask here why they are doing it, it's like poverty is number one uh, reason they give. Um, So probably what changed most was that uh, at the beginning, I had this uh, idea about them as being like monolithic, like uh, something that, uh, that it was like one dimensional. And now after reporting and after talking to them, I see them as human beings, like, of course, they are doing evil, but some of them are more evil than others some of them are more pushed by their circumstances and they know that they what they are doing is bad others are not like in every kind of industry you can see that um well of course they're like more three-dimensional characters
0: what they're really exploiting and what you write about too and this was just further exacerbated by the pandemic is just the pretty much a, a, a pan, an epidemic, especially in the United States, of, like, loneliness. So, like, uh, so what struck you about just the the loneliness crisis that we might have, you know, in, in Europe or the United States? And it's something that uh, really affected your mom, too, at this time.
1: Totally, totally. I had that angle from the beginning because writing this space and thinking about the project, I've realized that uh, writing about loneliness, especially writing about other people's loneliness, is really hard, you know, because when a person is lonely or is like living alone, you are not seeing it. And it's not that easy for a lonely person to describe their loneliness. Um, I'm not sure why, but uh, but it's hard. Whenever I have talked to all all the Roman scam victims, um, they uh, struggle. And it was one of the first questions well if not the first one of the the, the topics that uh, was re- raised over and over in my interviews not only with Roman scam victims or their families but also with Yahoo boys and the smartest ones knew what's going on in europe and in the us probably in the w- western world uh with loneliness because all of them they always point out that the that the thing that like the most important thing wasn't love or like the, the most important thing was attention. And it took a while for me to realize that there are so many people. Most of them are older, but uh, n- not everybody, but so many people in, around us, they don't talk to anyone. Like they wake up and they don't have messages. Uh, they go to sleep and they don't have messages. They have talked to, talk to uh, nobody and after a while, just receiving an, how was your day, babe? That was how Biggie put it to me, mm-hmm. the, the, the Yahoo boy. That's very important to some people. And it's something that is wild because here in Nigeria, as in other Western African countries, they always tell me that their concept of loneliness is different. Like, I remember talking to a Yahoo boy girl, a girlfriend. And she was very dismissive of the victims uh, because they were like, here in Nigeria, for example, when we are lonely, we go to see uh, our brother, or our sister, we go to their house, but not in America or in Europe. If you are lonely, you go to the internet and you send money to someone that you've never met. Of course, this is, this is her way of, of seeing things, but it, like very bluntly. But it was an issue that he was brought up in every conversation I had because they know what's going on in America and in Europe and they take advantage of that for sure.
0: What I, what was really uh, not chilling might be the wrong word, but was when you showed uh, a message that the, the scammer Brian had sent your mom and you show, I think you showed it to Biggie and he read it and he was like, Oh, that guy's good. And like, and then he said of your mom, like, like she was ready.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. Um, I remember it. It was with a Smart Billion, who was a uh, biggest friend. And I, I usually ask all the Yahoo boys about my mother's emails because I wanted to know what they thought about Brian. Like I call him Brian, but of course, his name, his real name is not Brian. But I remember that moment. And Smart Billion, you have to, like, remember that these guys, all they do, Well, uh, it's like all they do is talking to other people online so they Mm -hmm. know when they are closer to uh, receiving money because every minute they spend talking to someone who is not going to send them money, uh, they are are losing money because they could be talking to other victims. So whenever I asked them how many people have you talked to, they were like hundreds, you know? And when he told me that... My mother was ready only by reading a couple of emails because my mother deleted most of the emails and uh, we only had a thread of emails. And I was... You're right that chilling is not the right word, but I was uh, surprised by how close we were. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Because another thing that the scammers told me was that Maybe Brian was good, but maybe he should have waited a few weeks more because uh, if he knew that my mother had uh, sons, he knew that at some point my mother would ask her sons. So they have these intricate, like complicated uh, way of seeing things. Um, They are very, very cold-hearted they are very they calculate everything very well they also made me see that maybe my mother's camera rust a bit and if he would have waited a bit more maybe he would have uh, got money but but yeah it was it was quite a moment when the guy was like this guy is good your mother was ready
0: and, and for the writing of the piece, you know, how important was it for you to to use that, the, like, the personal through line of, like, you and your mom through this piece that kind of carries the reader through it, you know, that as, as a device?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I've also thought a lot about this. One, uh, probably in terms of their reporting, the story would have been completely different because these people... Like they were hard, like it was difficult to talk to them because for them, it was like, why am I going to talk to you uh, if you're going to like do an expose? And in the end, my my business is going to be like threatened. So the idea that I was a son of a victim, weirdly enough, strangely enough for the scammers, they were like, yeah, I understand you. So also because they were like my age or something similar, I'm 27 and they could relate to that. So I think that uh, the reporting made the writing like personal as well. And um, another thing that it was important was to tell the reader uh, that uh, I had something like this happened to me and to my mother because I wanted to humanize the the scammers, but I also wanted to tell the readers, and specifically the victims. Uh, My mother was a victim, so I wanted to find a balance between uh, both worlds, which is always difficult, and I thought that uh, doing it like with the first person was the only way to to find that balance. And also, another thing that was important, I did this on my own, without almost, like, At the beginning, I didn't have any resources. So what I wanted to tell the reader was, this is my story. This is not the story of every Yahoo boy, or this is not the story of every Roman scam victim. Um, I wanted to be humble in that sense. And I think that sometimes the first person in writing conveys that message very well. And, And that was my goal.
0: Yeah, I I love in the there's a moment in the book that's really a book in the in your article that's uh, really touching and uh, you know my parents split up when I was 12 and I I more or less was I had a very much older sibling so she was kind of out of the house so I was essentially it was just like me and my mom and I similarly kind of kept myself just entertained the you know as You know, as you wrote, like to keep myself company, I made up stories and I also spent countless hours in front of my PlayStation, pausing between games or levels to look out the window and wonder if the world outside was getting away from me. I don't remember feeling particularly sad, just empty, like a shoebox without shoes in it. And uh, I I just found that really touching and actually really relatable. And uh, I don't know, maybe you can uh, just put us in your shoes a little bit in that moment, of just what it was like for you as a kid, you know, and your when your parents split up?
1: Because I come from a, like I was a journalist, and at the beginning it was a bit hard to write something personal, but uh, when I was thinking about the piece, I think that it was important to tell the reader that I also have my own conception of loneliness. Uh, probably every, everybody does, because I think that everybody goes through a period of loneliness in their life, but when, you are a, a, when you're a kid and your parents go through a divorce, my perception or my, my thinking about it is that you get older very quickly because you see things that all the kids do not see. Um, so that distance between you and the, the other kids that are your age may, makes you uh, probably more lonely. And... As I say, it wasn't something that I I thought about it like, oh, I'm so miserable. But it was the distance between me and the people around me that kept surprising me. me. And I just thought, like I've, I've thought a lot about it. And, you know, when you are 12, when you are 13, you don't have the distance to know that it's happening to a lot of people. You just have your little story. Yeah, you are you are like the the main character mm-hmm. of your story. So I remember thinking about that a lot, quite a lot, and probably um, being a bit dramatic mm-hmm. <laughs> about it. Yeah, I remember that I couldn't sleep. For example, so like I was alone at home because maybe my mother wasn't at home, and I couldn't sleep, and I kept thinking about what it was to be alone, and I kept thinking. If all the boys or girls were alone too
0: yeah and at the towards the end of the, the piece you, know, you write that it, this it wasn't necessarily about finding out who, this, who scammed your mom. it was about trying to bridge the gap between your sense of your mom and her sense of herself. And how, how did that gap uh, narrow uh, throughout the process of, of reporting this piece and writing this piece?
1: Uh, the beginning, I was, you know, I was thinking about this as, a, as the perfect narrative arc, you know, even if I didn't find him. Uh, well, no, it's, I wanted to find him because I imagined this perfect narrative arc where, uh, you know, like it was too tight, yeah. too perfect. And for the story, I thought that, that that was it. But And also because I thought I had this idea in my mind that if I met Brian. Um, he would tell me something about my mother that I didn't know because I mean, I'm sure that this happens to uh, everybody when they look at their parents and they get older and suddenly they are taking care of their parents um, in a way. And they look at them and they think there are so many things I don't know about you, even if, even though we like, we've spent so many hours together and Probably that 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 distance between my mother and me uh, was. I I, I I I this I a line about like a line from Philip Lopez. He told me once, you know, like uh, parents before being parents, they were human beings, and I love that quote because I find it very re- relatable in the sense that, uh, of course, my mother had their had her own thoughts, her own fears. Like, there were so many things that I didn't see or I didn't think when I was a kid that I don't know what's going on in her mind. And, of course, after the story, I don't think that I uh, now I know more, but probably I'm more aware that that distance sometimes is impossible to uh, erase. But if you are more aware of that distance, maybe you can be... Uh, closer to the people that you love
0: yeah that that leads to my my next question which was like how did this this journey personal journey uh, of uh, this kind of exploration uh how did this change the relation just change your change your relationship with your mother or at least maybe change your understanding of your mother
1: um, well, first of all, I have to acknowledge and thank her for for being brave. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. if she if she had told me, look, I don't want I don't want my name on the story. I don't want you telling the story. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. Um, I I wouldn't have told the story, of course. So um, my mother from the beginning she was excited, elated on on like because I was writing the story, and her main motivation was that. Uh, She kept telling me and my brothers, I wasn't scammed because of my sons. But if you had not been there, uh, probably I would have been scammed. Like I would have sent money. And I'm sure that it's happening to so many women. My, My mother believes that it's only happening to women, but it's happening to men as well. But her point was, let's try to help those women who are more lonely than I am. And from the very beginning, she was eager that I was telling her story. I would say that as a, my personal journey, from the beginning, I had a very close relationship with my mother. But probably now I'm more aware of the things that she, that she did for us, for me and my brothers. You know, when you look at all, all the people, when you look at your parents, especially if they, if they are divorced, Uh, when you look at a single single parent there are so many things that you didn't see the efforts they made uh, the struggles they went through that you kind of forget at least in the case of my mother taking care of us uh, working hard and paying for our education and for everything sometimes meant not going out, not meeting other people and that's something that Before writing this story, I thought I, I didn't. I didn't think so. Probably I'm more aware of my mother's efforts to raise
0: us. And so far as the sitting down to write this piece and get your head around everything with your research and your reporting, like what is the you know your practice in how any idiosyncratic routines that you adhere by so you can get into the right headspace to start writing?
1: Well, first of all, I need to have a beginning. Uh, I struggle a lot writing a piece if I don't have, uh, like, an image. Like, an initial image where I can start, like, the the piece. Uh, It doesn't matter if uh, after that I change the beginning a bit, but um, I keep reading the piece every time I'm writing it. So, uh, at some point, I need to have uh, beginning very advanced in a way so then uh with this piece I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I, I'm gonna tell the truth I struggled a lot with the structure because it was a, a difficult piece to to write in the in the sense that uh, there are so many different angles and so many different voices that sometimes I struggled a bit um but I have to say that and this might sound uh counterintuitive or um, a bit weird, but be um um I'm, I'm a Spanish writer and this is the first like long piece that I've ever written in in English. But in some way I think of course it was the hard, but in some way I think that was an advantage because when you have less tools you know like you know what you can do and you, you know what you can't mm-hmm. do. So in that sense, um, the writing came mm, easier, um, and probably I always had this idea that probably the piece was something like a coming-of-age book. Uh, I hate that expression. I don't know why I said it, <laughs> uh, but I I always had this idea that that the because I didn't find the guy. there had to be some kind of moral evolution to to the character, to who who was me. But of course it couldn't be something very obvious because then if it's too tight, too perfect, the reader will notice. And I usually hate that as well. So it was like building the structure was this difficult, like building this, this kind of building um, where you have to do one thing without doing it. We like it might sound weird, but uh, yeah, I was always trying to build that uh, moral evolution of the character without ha- being too present.
0: Yeah, well, it, without it being tied up nicely, where you get to confront. The, the scammer who you know scams your mom it's like the, the journey then becomes more internal and the revelation is discoveries you and a greater understanding that you have uh, you know with your mother and I think that has is its own payoff and in, in the end
1: totally and uh, I've also thought a lot about it like what would I have done if I had met Brian I don't think that peace would have changed. Uh, at all, because when you talk when you talk to these scammers, and for them, look, they call their victims clients. So probably my mother for Brian was another client, and at some point I learned that my like Brian was anyone that were that were like anyone that was doing the the scam. So. Even in Nigeria, when I was here, uh, when, when I was there, I realized that uh, talking to the scammers, in a way, I was talking to Brian because they were telling me something probably very similar to what uh, Brian would have told me. And also there, there was a point where I, I, I kept thinking, if these Yahu boys are like masterminds, then I can understand why it happened to my mother, you know? Of course, after two or three days talking to them, I realized that some of them were smart. Some of mm-hmm. them were um, a bit callous. But uh, mm-hmm. I also realized that what they were doing wasn't anything as special. Sometimes speaking, uh, like the, the, um, what they were saying was riddled with cliches. And what I realized was that I could learn more from my mother about this than from them. And in that way, yeah, totally. It was like an internal kind of trip. But I had to come here to understand that, which at the beginning, when I I was writing this, I was a bit frustrated because I I didn't want to say I had to go all the way to Nigeria to understand my mother's loneliness. I think it was part of the process. And I think that, uh, as you said before, because of that trip because i saw what the yahoo boys are doing because i i met all the victims and this is important because as a reporter uh and a writer it's weird like you feel like you find easier to report on other people that you don't know than to do reporting inside your own family probably because you are uh more prone to judge them um and when i saw other victims' loneliness when i saw their problems when i saw their broken dreams then it became easier for me to understand what my mother had gone through that it was a very universal experience um so yeah in that in that sense it took a while for me to understand that the trip for that internal like for, like the, the the real trip it was necessary for that internal trip that that, that you are mentioning
0: what would you say your relationship is to loneliness these days?
1: Ooh, That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I don't know what you think, but uh, when you were lonely or where you were alone as a child, you have a different relationship to loneliness in the sense that uh, I'm quite chill with it now. Like I need to be alone sometimes. I know that it's it's important to 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 differentiate between uh, being alone and being lonely. But it's not something that uh, I worry about. But I've also realized, talking to my mother and other victims, that loneliness is mostly uh, a trans like a transition or like a period of your life that something happened to you. Like it's important. Uh, to uh, highlight that uh, almost every Roman scam victim have gone through uh, some sort of trauma. I've talked a lot with friends about this piece and about uh, loneliness, and I think that everybody, or almost everybody, goes through a period of loneliness in their life, and now I'm not in, in, in one of them, unfortunately. Uh, but um, I think that, uh, yeah, that probably everybody goes through through them and it's hard to, well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about a quote. I, I, I can't remember what the, what the quote was and, the, and who said it, but it was something like, I think it was Olivia Lang um, when she wrote about, about New York and loneliness. A, it was a quote from the book, and it said something like, "When people go through a period of loneliness, after that they want to forget about their loneliness, and they don't remember it. And if you think about it, whenever someone tells you that she or he they like they are lonely, it raises like an immediate suspicion on the, on the person that is saying that. Um, so I wonder why that is."
0: when you're stuck writing writing a piece and maybe you experience that with this one um like who did who did you like con- confide in and and how do you talk through you know you, any problem you have with you know synthesizing a piece you know w- when you feel stuck
1: well first i try to avoid telling mm, what i'm writing to mm-hmm. many people sometimes i failed <laughs> And, um, I become this person who is always talking about the same thing. So something that I hate, <laughs> first of all, I try to avoid, like, first of all, I try to read it out loud and to try to see where the problem is. And then probably because of the English language I mentioned before, I keep thinking about images and I think that that's very helpful. Um, for the reader especially for the beginning but for the every beginning of a different section and at some point if I'm still stuck, stack I served my problems with writing colleagues or maybe reporters that uh, are also eager to help but at some point I found and uh, I've learned in this process that you have to do it yourself, you know? Or maybe when you are in the editing process, that uh, improves. But it's wild how you're writing something, you're stuck uh, on it on a piece, and then you go out for a walk, or uh, you go out for a run, or maybe you just stop writing for a few days, and then the solution comes up. So I think that's my my answer. The, if I have a, a problem in terms of a structure that uh i can't resolve i just stop writing and i i go out for a coffee and then uh i text 10 friends telling them uh, uh i want to die uh
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i i i hear you there that's uh <laughs> like when you're sitting down to write are you, are you much of a, a an outliner or for when you when you're thinking about structure
1: that's a good question am I uh, an outliner um, yeah yeah I, I need to print uh, the the article I need to see it on paper um, so I can see where the problem is um, but also I try to again think in images so probably I divide the different sections on in images so probably yeah I, I do I do that
0: yeah. And, and when you're, you know, so, so, some reporters, they really love, you know, the research and reporting phase, some like the writing, uh, you know, for you, where do you feel most like alive and engaged in the process?
1: Okay, probably this sounds like cliche, because I've heard so many writers talking about this. But for me, I mean, it's true when you have written the piece and you are editing, and you have like 90 percent of the piece and you see like the light mm. at the end of the tunnel tunnel that's for me the best part reporting is also quite good uh quite funny as like quite fun as well um the other day i went to see a, a book presentation by patrick raden Keefe, a writer oh, that yeah. i really he's admire great. yeah and i he yeah he's great he was saying something very interesting um that whenever he's doing like interviewing a, uh, a person when he's doing research he's also thinking in terms of their writing probably that's my favorite part as well I, I, I know that I have to get better because sometimes it's really hard to, to well to think to ask questions and at the same time think in terms of the narrative but for example when I'm out um, in a car in Lagos or where uh, for example when I'm with a Juju Priest in, um, in the outskirts of Lagos and I'm asking that I'm asking him questions. I I also try to picture that scene in terms of the narrative. And for me, that's the more like the the the, the more the most fun part of writing the story because it's like a like building like yeah, like a puzzle. So uh, it's quite fun. Then of course, the hardest part is just sit and write because you have the, the pieces of the puzzle that you have no idea how to how to do it.
0: Well that yeah that's that's a challenge too. It, it, early on like it almost trying to see the shape of a piece inside your head as you're reporting it. It it's a fine balance because you're like I want to just let the reporting tell me what the story's going to be, but also you have to kind of think oh what is the shape of this or what is it I'm really trying to say and that can also shape your reporting. So it it's like one, yeah, like one is totally. like very passive, but important, but the other is a bit more pointed, if that makes any sense.
1: Oh, totally. I agree 100% with you. Because at the beginning, and also with this story, for example, like I was doing interviews. And for example, we I had a, an apartment in mainland Lagos and people like, for example, Yahoo Boys came to the apartment and the interviews went great. But in terms of the narrative, I realized that it was very. Um, I was stuck in the apartment, and there was no movement. And this is important, but at, at the same time, if you are thinking too much about the narrative, you are in a way closing the door for other stories. It's a contradiction in itself. But sometimes, when I I get relaxed in an interview, when I am like, okay, I'm not gonna think about anything else. I'm just gonna go with the with the in TV, we like whatever he or she wants to tell me. And sometimes they they, they take you to uh, incredible places. Like they tell you stories that are wild. And if I have the feeling that if you are too busy thinking in terms of the narrative, you don't get good answers because your questions are too tight, mm. too perfect. You don't, you don't realize that uh, the que- the questions that you bring are just like uh, an idea that you had before meeting this this guy. So uh, I totally hear you. I think that uh, it's hard to find a balance and you have to think about both at the same time, which is, yeah, really, really hard.
0: And you mentioned Patrick Redden-Keefe. Uh, I wonder who else might be you know, writers and, or journalists, narrative journalists who you deeply admire and you know whose work that you want to emulate and, and imitate and become, ideally?
1: I mean, Patrick Roddenkiff, for me, is kind of like my idol. Yeah. Um, uh, every every book that he's written is, like, amazing. Uh, probably I'm trying to strike a balance. Uh, here we go. Trying to compare <laughs> myself to Patrick Roddenkiff and Emmanuel Carrere. I, I really like the first Emmanuel Carrere, the French writer. Um, because he combined uh, the first person with reporting. Um, but I'm talking about the first Emmanuel Carrera, his first books, because there's something very liberating about the idea of writing from the first person, especially if you don't have the New Yorker resources, for example, where like you can spend six months reporting on something um it's very liberating because it's a way to say this is my story and probably there are others as well and i really like for example uh i don't know what's the english title of the manuel carrer first book or the 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 most famous book i don't remember i think it's the uh, the adversary the adversary um i don't know if you have read it but um it emulates um true blood Mm -hmm. i call blood sorry but Carrera was very uh, dismissive of of uh, Capote because, in a way, the, the beginning of uh, Emmanuel Carrera's book, that in a uh, long story short, his book is about a guy who pretended to be someone else. No, who pretended to, well, to have a, a job. And after 15 or 20 years, I don't remember, um, his family was going to uncover all of it. He, his family was going to discover it. And when he was going to be discovered, like when he was, like, people were going to know that he was a fraud, he killed his family and he tried to kill himself. And he didn't. And Emmanuel Carrera started talking to him while he was in, in prison. But my point is that that book starts with uh, the day that this guy killed his family, I was doing something like with my kids. And I think that that's very powerful and very liberating as well. And I aspire to strike that balance. But uh, there is another writer that I really like. Um, actually, I've read only one book. Uh, I I read this book like two weeks ago. But I'm completely I. You know when you read a book and you are like, this is the best yeah. book I've ever read. Probably because it's the last book yeah, that you yeah. read. But. Um, <laughs> It's called "It's called Ghost, Ghost of the Tsunami" by Richard Joy Farry. Um, it was published probably five years ago, and he's a British reporter that lived in Japan for so many for many years. And the book is about um, the tragedy of the 2011 tsunami, and but he tells the story of um, of a specific village that suffered the greatest loss, and. He does it in a way that is very compelling and very human, and you can see him through the piece. Um, but what really, what I really loved was that I kept thinking, "How did you do it?" You know, like in terms of the reporting, how did you do it? And to go back to Patrick Warden, Keith, he also said something. Uh, that is true. That whenever you start doing this, you don't read uh, a nonfiction book a nonfiction book ever the same, because if the book is so good, you 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 keep asking yourself how how this person do it. You know how like how how did you get this info from them? Um, because in terms of the writing and the reporting, that relationship is very difficult to achieve. So in a way, I'm probably telling you my, my, my idols, my like literary uh, idols, but at the same time, uh, reading the books is a problem because I keep thinking how the hell yeah. are they doing this?
0: Well, that that's the curse of becoming a writer is that reading in it in and of itself is never the same because you, you start reading as a writer and you start trying to decode it. So some of the magic goes away because you're like, how are they doing this? I need to do that. I want to try this. And instead of just like, instead of just like (laughs) surrendering to how good it is, you're like trying to figure it out. And in a way it kind of ruins reading in a way.
1: Yeah, totally in a way. But at the same time, that's the way you can learn how to do it. Because I remember one advice, like from a one professor, she told me, if you want to write this story, uh, go to the places where they are publishing these kind of uh, stories right now, print their stories, and uh, start dividing the story into blocks, into uh, different sections. Try to think how the writer thought, like how how the writer dropped this story. Try to think uh, like them. And it ruins the story, but you learn a lot from uh, taking the pieces that uh, your favorite writers have written and thinking how they solve the problems that you are, you are having, right? Like for example, how, the, how I'm, I'm gonna solve this problem that I have here with this transition or how I'm gonna solve the problem of what happens if I bring this character too soon and then it disappears how i'm gonna uh, help the reader understand or help the reader remember this person later on in the text you know there are so many tricks that you can learn from reading these people that it's wild and there are things that i'm saying right now that i want to do after this interview because i think there are much more things that i can learn from reading patrick rat and than uh what i thought so yeah if you take a piece from or like a book from your favorite writer and you start like thinking in terms of the structure thinking in terms of the style thinking in terms of each paragraph what like what's the goal of each paragraph uh you might get crazy but in the in the um, well like getting crazy you will learn a lot from it.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, well, Carlos, I, I like to end these conversations by asking the guest, you in this case, uh, a recommendation for the listeners uh, out there, and and that can just be anything you're excited about—a TV show, a book, or uh, you know, a brand of socks that you really like. So, uh, it's so I'll I'll leave that up to you. You know, what would you recommend for the listeners out there?
1: Oh, well, I thought about that book, "The Ghost of the Tsunami," but I'm gonna recommend. Uh, different one and uh, as a Spaniard I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend a book called The Forging of a Rebel by journalist and writer Arturo Barea Uh, he was a writer in the 20th century during the civil war in Spain and he wrote a trilogy called The Forging of a Rebel that is probably my favorite book of all times I gave it to um, a few people in the like Maybe in the last few years, and I'm quite obsessed with it because I think that in the three books, one of them is about his upbringing in Madrid in the 1920s, you know, like a poor, like a poor uh, neighborhood. The second one is about a war uh, that happened in Morocco later on, and the third one is about the Civil War, and Arturo Varea was in the in the side of the Republicans. He had to. Um, he, he had to go to London um, because of the, the, the dictatorship, and he died there. He died in the exile. And within this book, you, you are like you are—you learn so much about writing, but also about about living. And he has a quote that is amazing. I don't remember the particular quote in English, but I'm gonna destroy the quote. I'm sorry, Arturo Barea's <laughs> uh, relatives. But it's something like. To write truthfully, to write like with truth, you really have to live truthfully. And I think that's beautiful. And uh, I try to remember every day that if you really want to write truthfully, you have to try to live first, to have experiences, to know more about people, to be more a human being. And uh, I hope that uh, we writers remember that um, every time we try writing.
0: Well, that's amazing. That's a great place. Uh, that that's a great place to end our conversation. That was uh, that's really insightful and I, really brilliant. I think I'm going to be chewing on that one for the rest of the day. So, uh, so Carlos, thank you so much for this piece that you did for the Adavis, and of course, you know, thanks for coming on the show to talk shop. This was really fun.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, uh, I'll keep listening to other conversations with future Adavis writers.
0: Fantastic. Thanks to Carlos. Thanks to Sayward. Amazing piece for the Atavis. We did it. We got through June. Tomorrow's my birthday. July 1st, Canada Day. Number 43. Ooh. Don't forget to rage against the algorithm with me over at Substack. I've pulled way back on Instagram and Twitter. Uh... I just check Twitter like I check email these days. I barely put anything there. Having more fun with Insta uh, with Substack, even though the audience isn't quote unquote as big. Uh, using notes instead of tweeting, and then uh, uh, really trying, leaning into the newsletter aspect of it. I, it's more more fun. I think it's a little more pure, at least right now. Who knows what's going to happen? Rage against the algorithm. Dot Substack. So sometimes I wonder what the fascination is with wanting to know artists, and in our case, primarily writers' routines. It's this creative voyeurism, and I can't get my head around why we care, but we really do. On some level, we're insecure, I think. You know, we, and if we listen to how Andre DeBuse the Third or Joyce Carol Oates or Roxane Gay, how they grease the gears to write, well, maybe we can. You know, one-click shop or add to cart, and use some trial and error to strengthen our own practice. You know, sometimes I think that might just be a means of procrastinating. You know, of putting off doing doing the work. You know, if I just try this new thing, then maybe this is gonna be the thing that does it. Yeah, uh, I've grown less concerned with other people's routines. I used to be obsessed about it, and I still sometimes ask about it. Uh, you know, I used to, I, I used to love when Tim Ferriss would ask his guests that, but then I just kind of outgrew that, outgrew that podcast a long time ago. I wonder how many people have outgrown this one. That's a, that's a, that's a riff for another day about outgrowing a podcast and a guest, particular, or a guest, uh, an interviewer. I am thinking out loud, so I'm going to stop doing that. All I'm saying is, all I care about is whether you do have a practice, something repeatable. And that gets me to a great quote I pulled from uh, Easy Strength Omnibook by Dan John, a revered strength coach. He writes at one point, like, if it isn't sustainable, repeatable, and doable, I don't do it. That's the thing with writing. Be it an essay, a book, routine. If it isn't sustainable, repeatable, and doable, you won't do it. The ethos of easy strength is not really to feel the burn. you know, Do the same thing, Every day, very low sets, very low reps. When weight feels light, add weight. If it doesn't feel white, stay the same or maybe take some off. Idea is to never miss a rep and never miss a workout. Over time, you slowly get stronger. You might not get chiseled. Who knows? You know, that's that's for Instagram. But you get stronger. Uh, You might be useful. You might be someone who can actually help a friend lift his canoe up onto the top of his van. That makes you useful and a good neighbor. Uh, Slowly is the problem. People don't necessarily have the patience for slowly, and I get it. But slowly is, wait for it, sustainable, repeatable, and doable. We're attracted to marathon writing sessions or 1,500 words a day for a month. Feels good for like two and a half days. Then you hit the wall, and suddenly you're trying to squeeze water out of granite invariably you give up. I understand nobody can write every day. I understand that binge writing's a thing, you know, you find it in your schedule and you you do it. You know, that's no judgment. But I'd rather see you never get, you know, quote unquote sore and start just by writing, I don't know, a hundred words a day, maybe five to ten minutes and cut it off. And when that feels too light, add weight. Maybe up the word count a little bit. Maybe Maybe one day you know you're feeling good. You're just in the flow, and to stop would be more painful than to keep going. So you go, boom and man, you just you spit out two thousand words. You know it's seductive to hammer and crush, be it in the gym or in art, and it makes for great social media content. But that becomes in in and of itself performative, and that's gross. And you're better than that. I know you are sustainable repeatable doable love that baby so stay wild seeing efforts and if you can do interview safe